the HBM podcast. I am not on program, and I'm joined by Frank. Frank, how are you doing? Hello, Leon. I'm Frank. I am currently running away from corporate security, but I'm sure things will work out well. How are you doing, Leon? Aren't we all, Frank? <laughs> we sure are. But can we run away from the corporate security inside us? Now that's a tough question. And today we are talking about the micronation of Andorra. I hold on, hold on, Frank. One, one second. No, Andor, the TV show. Oh, let me right. Wait. Okay. Oh, I need to throw all these Andorra notes away. <laughs> yeah. No, sadly, it's the prince. The proud principality of Andorra will be another episode. I can guarantee. But it's uh, sadly we're talking about Star Wars again. We cannot escape it. It's always lurking. Since since Leon joined this illustrious production house of uh, Left Page and Herbie Media, we have talked. Uh, we almost talked about uh, almost talked about Star Wars as much as we haven't, <laughs> but for good reason. For good reason. I, yeah. I we talked about it in the year review episode a little bit, and uh, yeah, no, it's and we also <laughs> we have talked a lot about Empire. So if we if, oh. we, if we include the memory called it, oh no, that's the Left Page episode. Never mind. That's it still counts. Yeah, it counts in spirit, if anything. <laughs> and oh boy, does the thing that we are going to talk about today have a lot of spirit, I think. Yeah, I think but so. The first couple other things that I would like to talk about just in the, media, in the general media landscape of today, we had the first episode of the Last of Us yes. series on HBO Max or HBO. Uh, that's a whole thing as well. They are not doing well. <laughs> They like removing and adding stuff onto <laughs> HBO Max, and like <laughs> the whole point is of streaming. Uh, by the way, Time Warner, if you're listening, and I know you are, great fans. I know I, I I'm ignoring <laughs> your DMs on purpose, but in in all seriousness, the whole point of streaming is that you add all your gigantic conglomerate media hellscape empire onto one big pile, so I can shift <laughs> shift through it when I'm on my most goblins of modes, and. And, and like find what I want in your in your in your gargantuan trash pile of media. Like it's it's not going to work if you segment your own. If you don't utilize the advantage of your enormity <laughs> in a productive manner, like that's not that's not it. That's oh Christ! Why yeah. does nobody understand how to do anything? Why am they why don't. am I burdened with knowledge? It's it's so, <laughs> it's so hard. Yeah. Okay. In all seriousness, that that's the thing that came out, and I want to very, very briefly, don't worry, uh, talk about the first episode that I have not watched. But I'm still going to talk <laughs> about it. I know that sounds weird, dear listener, but that's because I have seen a lot of uh, response to it, and I've seen enough clips to warrant it. Mm-hmm. I'm probably just going to wait until it all aired, you know, because uh, I don't like week-by-week viewing Netflix has ruined me in this regard. <laughs> no, not really. But in all seriousness, I, I kind of like to just watch when I want to watch yeah. and not be interrupted. And I feel like if I'm interrupted by this show by having to wake another week, I might never come back to it. So I don't know. Yeah. Other than that, uh, we, we have seen, uh, I've seen a lot of footage online. And the consensus is that it isn't bad, but it <laughs> so fervently tries to adhere to the already quite cinematog- uh, cinematographical uh, shots in the video game. 
and it tries to do it one for one it's with strange. like even right so it's Pedro Pascal even mimics the position that Joel uh, Joel Miller I believe his full name is I'm not that familiar with Last of Us I, I have played both <laughs> games but that's out of here or there the uh, he even strikes the same pose which I find so interesting like uh, because mainly in the last bonus episode that you can listen to, uh, the year in review episode, we talked a little bit, a little bit about. Well, I monologued. I'm so sorry, Frank. <laughs> I monologued a little bit about um, people a- adapting media, other media, or source material in a unfaithful manner, mm-hmm. and this <laughs> to to immediately uh, perform a counter to what I just said. This show seems to do the 180 degree opposite so it i'm i want to watch it simply because of that because it might be an interesting uh, how to say this an interesting addition to the landscape of adaptation Mm -hmm. and i think we can learn a thing or two and it might directly or indirectly influence the landscape of media and the landscape of or not really landscape but like the tradition of adaptation in an interesting or at least in a notable way <laughs> by being so one-on-one, you know? Yeah. I don't, I don't know if you have anything to say on that. Or... Um, Controversial, but uh, I I can't be bothered with Last of Us. Um, I couldn't with the game. Uh, nothing. It's nothing personal, really. I just don't care. <laughs> uh, it's I not, not a big fan of zombies because um, not a big fan of horror. But, you know, it's like, I think it varies from environment. So, like, I could play... Last of Us, no, wrong game. Left for Dead, uh, and and sure I could play Last of Us, but it's like eh, I, I just generally don't like it. I don't like post-apocalyptic scenarios, uh, at least ones that are you know generally miserable and depressing. Uh, so I couldn't be asked, and I just I don't want to see it. I want it to be good. Uh, don't don't want to be negative about it, but yeah, I just I'm generally indifferent to The Last of Us. Um, which makes me part of a very small percentage of people who don't care. Uh, but it's fine. I, I really don't mind. I, I hope it goes well and that it continues to be well. And I am slightly baffled by shot-for-shot adaptation. That's that's weird. Uh, we'll see how it goes. If it's, if it's that uh, consistent, I guess. If it tries to do that the entire time, that's weird. Because, uh, you know, it's not a video game. But, yeah. But we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, it threads this interesting line that you always must thread when you are adapting something. Yeah. And that is, uh, to what degree do we adapt and to what degree do we imitate? Yes. And this this one seems to uh, intensely go towards the imitation <laughs> side of things. And one can ask, what is the point then? You can have, there are a lot of cynics that that's, are of the opinion that all adaptation is pointless and it's just to be it's just for money and although i mm. <laughs> i find myself agreeing with this in spirits now and then i do think it might have some purpose even if even though it's not tremendous in its purpose there might just be it might be nice for more people to enjoy a certain storyline but then again i am of the opinion that the storyline of the last of us is not particularly how do we say this? Original? Well, originality is a thing that's 
I try not to judge things in and of itself sure. on, but it's but there is that, of course. Maybe you. But unique. then it is not. A, well, yeah, it, it's not an interesting exploration of anything that is trying to depict, and they try to be a bit more ambitious with it. I think I theorize in Last of Us Two, mm. where they model it off uh, Cassandra, the um, Greek uh, tragedy of Cassandra, ah, right. about the woman that can see into the future and stuff, and. I, I can I can talk about that a bit extensively, <laughs> and I won't. Um, it's um, nobody nobody's here for Last of Us Two because that's going to be a whole thing. But once again, uh, they they even have a folder. They uh, in the Last of Us Two, there you go into a cinema. And there's a folder of uh, of a performance of Cassandra, like a contemporary reinterpretation ah. of Cassandra. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's a bit on the nose, isn't it? Like. Get it, guys? We are doing that thing. That thing, you know? We are smart. We, this one. We, we use something of Greek strategy. Yeah, that's, that's what smart <laughs> people do, right? Talk about Greek classic literature. <laughs> it's, it's fine. It's fine. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. But it's uh, you can ask yourself, does that work with zombie apocalypse? And I think there's nothing that can or cannot necessarily work unless you're talking about certain atrocities in human history. Like, mm-hmm. once again, if you there's, some, there's something to be said about not doing direct allegories. <laughs> But um, this, once again, it's not because, oh, zombie apocalypse cannot go with Greek tragedy. I'm not saying that, but that would be a thing you might be, you might benefit from being more thoroughly aware of. But I'm not saying that this is the case or isn't the case for the production team of Last of Us 2, but never never mind all that. I just wanted to quickly note that that's the thing that was released, the first episode, I believe. I I want to make one final remark about uh, the whole thing. And the adaptation, I'm not really trying to make a value judgment out of it, but like I was talking to some friends who have watched the first episode, were really excited and are really liking it. And what they were mentioning, <laughs> I found this hilarious. Um, what was most lasting to them was the actual story more than the gameplay mechanically. So they really come, the, the, they want to replay the game, but it's like, ah, uh, you know, so in a sense. <laughs> The adaptation of a deeply cinematic game, which is remembered mostly by via storyline and it being cinematic, into a cinematic product, is is the preservation of what makes the game memorable by diminishing the game again. This is a theory. Yeah. Again, I've not played, I've not watched, and I don't want to do either. But uh, <laughs> from an external point of view, that's how it feels. For someone who has played the games, I do vehemently agree. Like, the game is always at risk of forgetting it is a game, and this is why I contrast Last of Us to God of War, for instance. Yeah. Because God of War, despite its excessive cinematography, if that's the right word for it, I'm mm-hmm. not sure, but its cin- uh, its cinema tendencies, if you will, mm-hmm. and it 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 never is fully at risk of forgetting it. It's a video game. Yes. I think, in my opinion. No, I agree. That that makes the because of that it makes the performances worthwhile the live action uh, the motion capture stuff and which I do think is should be considered as a impressive section of visual physical performance mm-hmm. and I do think the people who do mocap should you know get the credit they deserve for being actual performers yes. actual actors which is usually not the case and you know. Once again, insert God of War here, <laughs> both 2018 and 2022 Ragnarok, and yeah, anyway, so that's uh, that's that's the whole thing, and I just wanted to quickly mention it. 
as something that, that I find noteworthy and interesting in the media landscape. Yeah, agreed. Other than that, uh, quickly going to quickly uh, say one thing, and that is that this uh, this major studio that has been, I don't know, since 2008, 2007 maybe, such a gigantuan presence in my understanding of video games, maybe longer even. Mm. And this is, of course, Ubisoft, the European juggernaut of video games. And if I can call it that, <laughs> I think that's appropriate. But maybe uh, to add on or tag on to their juggernaut status, they recently have been in severe financial uh, problems. They have had a tur- turbulent history. They're French. Um, let's let's not be flippant about this but they have had internal strife and they had uh, attempts at hostile takeovers and it's 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 a very interesting history that i don't necessarily want to get into right now maybe we can do an episode on the studio itself maybe one day who knows but other than that it is they are not doing well and recently their ceo who a lot of people can remember from e3 being desperately unfunny um, I forgot his name, but it's like uh, Yves Molineux. Never mind. Yeah, that guy. And Guillermo. <laughs> he's Gil. Yeah, yeah, Guillem something. Yeah, I think it's Yves Guillermo because Molineux is is the other bad French. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's uh, doesn't really matter. The current CEO of Ubisoft was uh, sent a very interesting email to its to his team, and saying that well, the ball is in your go- court. You should uh, just work really hard, essentially, is what it comes down to. I'm slightly paraphrasing here, but otherwise you'll be here for a bit. Yeah, it's mostly that. And it, essentially this. And he just like, well, uh, the, the because of the things being as they are right now, which is totally up to you guys, by the way, not me, literal CEO hmm. of the company. Because once again, what does a CEO do? Like, <laughs> if he's not even willing to take responsibility of the literal direction of the ship, of not be it's like a captain of the ship that gets the captain's share, that gets the lion's share of everything and doesn't want to be a captain of the ship. Yeah. That's hilarious. That, that's mutiny. <laughs> and that's, that's, a warrant for, uh, that's a warranty for mutiny. And that's, uh, that's not, I don't know if I should draw that comparison, but people are getting fed up by him and there's a call to strike on 27th Friday, I believe that's correct. Mm. I'm sorry. Two seconds. Yes, the 27th of Friday the uh, the corresponding union or at least organization or uh, company organization linked to Ubisoft is calling for a strike. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just want to talk about that. I find that interesting because just to remind people that we are a leftist podcast oh, yeah. um, and we care <laughs> about these things. I do find the creation and the potential creation of video game unions, especially in the United States at this moment, which is yeah, well, something I hope will flourish the coming years and something that I'm very eager to follow. But it's still in its uh, infancy, I, I suppose. I don't want to use term... It's, it's new and it's emerging. I, I'm trying to find words that are not... that don't sound even remotely condescending because that's not at all what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, anyway, that, that's something that I find very interesting. And because, once again, uh, Ubisoft was is huge. And... I I liked the um, I used to play. I don't know if I still like them, but back in the day, I used to like the remakes of Prince of Persia oh, right. from the PlayStation Two, PlayStation Three era. Mm-hmm. And yeah, 
So once again, that's 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 really far back. That's like two thousand something, two thousand three, two thousand four. Well, anyway, it's a long time ago <laughs> in a galaxy far no, and, and right here, and yeah, and to see that, to see this company just struggling. Uh, there's this pirate game called Skull and Bones that has now been delayed for the seventh time. Oh. Hilarious. It's <laughs> because also it's delayed for the seventh time. But I okay well. If anyone is listening and is frothing at the mouth for Skull and Bones, let us know. I don't think you exist. <laughs> so if, if this if this uh, video game equivalent of Bigfoot wants to emerge and show themselves, then by all means, let me know. But I don't think you exist. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> putting a cap on that, because once again, I feel this episode is already going to be long enough. That That's just an interesting development, something I'm going to pay attention to. And because it's a strike action involved, I would humbly advise everyone listening to pay some attention to oh, that, yeah. if at all possible. Uh, I wish them a very happy strike. Uh, oh, I lost the name of the... Uh, well, if you Google Ubisoft strike, you'll find it. I'm so sorry. Professional podcast, everyone. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we are. We are. But um, it's French, so who, knows, who cares? No. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, I, I wish them the best of luck. And yeah, I hope... Uh, they will show the CEO what's for. <laughs> but um, enough about that. Unless you have something to add or say about it. Um, a happy strike. Strike's good. <laughs> happy strikeness. Moving on to the main course of the podcast. The main though. event. The main event. How about... Uh, <laughs> after my horrible introduction, how about you? How about you? Go, go ahead and tell us a little bit. As the non-Star Wars expert <laughs> on this podcast, that is true. You are the the Star Wars scholar here. Um, so, uh, you have to be something in life, Frank. I suppose something. so. <laughs> uh, something re- related to media like that, but yeah. So Andor, Andor is the show about you know titular character Cassian Andor and his I don't want to say adventure, but his. Uh, well, in one part, his uh, difficult journey, trying to mostly survive, run away, trying to find... It's interesting. I hadn't thought about this before. But he's trying to find a certain connection to his past and eventually sort of, I know, pushes past that and trying to yeah. work towards a different future. And, But at the same time, it's not only that. It is also the story of... Imperial repression, imperial bureaucracy and intelligence work. And it's also the story of the community of the planet Ferris, which is a, I don't know, not that relevant of a planet in the the outer rim, so further away from the core worlds, which is another frequent thing uh, in... uh, It's common in Star Wars, but also in other sci-fi media. But... A not important place. Uh, there's, you know, there's some salvage work. There's some industry apparently. There's some crafting, but it's a labor plant. Yeah, <laughs> mostly. Uh... <laughs> um, and what is? Um, it, it's also a story about this this planet's community and how it's it's handling and existing after it has fallen under imperial eye and thus imperial domineering and uh, vigilance. It has entered the uh, the imperial panopticon, so to speak. So <laughs> it's 
it's a story about all these. And, and then as we also get further into it, the story of those working towards building a, a rebellion against the Galactic Empire run by, by the Emperor and, you know, that whole thing. And we also get a glimpse of Imperial politics and the Senate, which uh, I find quite interesting in terms of like, yeah, this is a, <laughs> this is a nothing core um, organ thing. This, this is a nothing and uh, you know people yeah. some people defunct political body yes it, precisely and, you know some people still believe this is important uh not really though the, the emperor says and uh, the imperial bureaucracy executes so that's uh that's how aut- yes. autocracies work and you know uh <laughs> it, it's interesting we get a, a, a widespread look into some of these various actors that become a part of this of there is no such thing as the rebellion, but there is uh, rebellious. Mm, there's a proto rebellion. There's a proto rebellion, and there are rebellious uh, actions, organizations, and attempts. And there is one character who is trying to, I know, coordinate that and bear some of the burden in terms of connection, communication, and resources. And yes. how he is. You know, uh, literally burdening says the deaths and and the work and the the path of all this, and it is being, and you know how how that process is going. So it's a show that has everything. It has high stuff. Yes. It has adventure. It has murder. It has investigation. It has spying. Um, and yeah. Well, its main focus is sorry. Of can course, I? go ahead. It's it's its main focus, what you touched upon, and what I think Frank rightfully touched upon is because of its main focus shifting back to rebellion. Yeah. And if you look at the original trilogy, we there is the, the focus is the rebellion, and there's just the rebellion, and that's that. Ergo, that I I always say that Star Wars is about two things. People have a lot of uh, debates about what Star Wars is about, <laughs> and I believe I already said this in uh, in the coder episodes. I'm so sorry for repeating myself. But because uh, people not seemingly not very uh, being very understanding of this, I will gladly repeat myself and say that Star Wars can be about two things: namely, that family can be found and not created, or like <laughs> it's not biologically determined. Yeah. And but mostly, it's about killing fascists. Yes. And I am very happy to announce that Andor, in so many ways, is per- vehemently establishing, re-establishing, I should say that the empire is fascist and not just a side, not just a ideology, not just a opinion to have. It is fascist and it is vehemently, or it's bad in it's entirely as only fascist can be. And I'm very happy mm-hmm. about that because once again, a two very, uh, to, to step outside the constraints of media real quick, uh, there is a Star Wars amusement park run by disney of course because that's what <laughs> disney does and i believe like you can have fun with stormtroopers there and to me that's like <laughs> you you do know they're called stormtroopers right <laughs> my guy like yeah all right the term stormtrooper originates in the german empire in world war one but that <laughs> let's not be let's not be flippant here come on let's not be th- okay <laughs> well that, that's a whole thing that i'm sure most of our listeners already uh can can uh, already got a grasp grasp on that stormtroopers not good yeah and uh yeah well they they uh, they they depict something that's clearly 
almost and this is this is rare coming from me but uh, too too direct of a analogy to actual history <laughs> even though i will say george uh, lucas's defense he borrows the aestheticism from uh, the you know nazi germany obviously mm-hmm. but it is not just nazi germany it's also about american imperialism it's also about british imperialism yeah. or just western imperialism in general and there's this 2010 interview with james cameron in which he said that the rebels are based on Viet Cong and that the United States was the empire during the Vietnam War. And this was promptly ignored by a lot of Star Wars fans <laughs> and by Disney first and foremost. Because, I don't know, that's that's a whole thing, right? And because you can't happily sell Gustavo action figures, I suppose. <laughs> Although Disney, I'm sure, will try it if <laughs> if we are even remotely tolerant of it. Yeah. Uh, what I'd add to to, to that uh, to the fascist point, just very briefly, I'm sorry, uh, is no, that ahead, unlike no, you know the the more recent Star Wars movie trilogy thing, if that can be called a trilogy, but we'll not have we don't have we won't have this dis- that discussion here. Uh, is that as in three movies released subsequently? <laughs> <laughs> yes, as that, uh, th- which carry you know a representation of the fascist aesthetic, but not the substance. I'd say that Andor really much represents what is fascist attitude, behavior, uh, you know, posture, control, vigilance. What is fascist power, really? And how does that operate and act in everyday life, literally? So uh, in that sense, I think, and and we're going to have this discussion in a moment, but regardless of Mm -hmm. Disney, and we'll talk about Disney, this is a show that very much understands, like, this is fascism. And here's what fascism does. Here's how it acts. Here's how it uh, supports itself. And, you know, it's without a doubt fucking, fucking monstrous. There's no justification. Yeah. There's no, oh, but no. No, just no. Full stop. Yeah, definitely. It's really refreshing to, once again, have someone who have a, well, any media for that, for that matter. I somehow yes. <laughs> people struggle with this, I feel, across the board. We we are going to focus on Disney in this case, but I will say say uh, very briefly, a lot of media struggles with uh, utterly condemning fascists. There must always be this. I'm always reminded of uh, the Legend of Korra Avatar, mm. not the blue people one, but the animated <laughs> series about people who can bend elements. And at the end, uh, the Avatar Korra defeats a uh, a, f- a fascist. But the fascist is also a woman. So she gets this girl power speech alongside the uh, avatar. As in, well, I think we could have been friends in other universe, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, you just want to save your people. It's like, that's, that's, oh, oh, oh that's, that's so bad. <laughs> After already condemning, like, a group of people that have clear leftist slash communist aesthetical analogies. And I don't know. It's it's, and also, also misappropriating or like appropriating wrongfully uh, uh, anarchist aesthetics, uh, making them out to be like uh, crazed lunatics and whatnot. And that's oh, hmm, we should maybe do. Uh, uh, you like, you said it's not. Uh, go check out. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, real quick. Go check out K and Skittles video on Korra the uh, Avatar Legend of Korra Avatar show. Uh, they made amazing video essays on each season, I believe. And essentially, they are saying everything that I, <laughs> that I always felt and articulated quite well. Uh, mainly thanks to Skittles, not so much K, but, you know, K is 
they do their best. So they do, but it. Skittles. But, yeah, right? <laughs> so we all know who runs it. Yeah. But other than that, it's... <laughs> so um, to say that, once again, admittedly, Legend of Korra is a bit old by now. But, well, not old, but not the most contemporary thing to cite, I suppose, um, or to reference outside. But other than that, it is a good example, I think. And it's it's that decision that they made is a decision that reverberates throughout the media landscape. I think mainly Western yeah. um, media landscape. And then particularly within the Western media landscape, the American uh, United States uh, yeah. West, uh, media landscape. Uh, yeah, so... Sorry, I was going to say that real quick. My apologies. Please continue. Uh, Andor. So Andor. <laughs> that it, it very much, I, I don't know, I, th- I think we can go go into it unless you have something to say about uh, no, this No, no, let's, let's get into um, it. <laughs> I'm going to go right for, you know, the, the elephant in the room. Uh, can this be a leftist piece of media? Can, you know, something that's made by Disney be, you know, a leftist thing, an anti-fascist thing that's... <laughs> That's been a part of the of the well leftist discourse thing in in in, in Twitter and other stuff lately, ever since the show. Because yeah. overall, it's a very good show. Uh, I think it's got it's got good characters, got good representation in terms of like what it's trying to portray. Save for one, but I will save that for a little bit. But okay, I'm curious. Yes, I, I have surprises too, but never doubted. <laughs> But overall, this question of like, can it be, oh, is this really leftist? Is Disney being, is like, first of all, you know, the, the media, the, the the cultural analyst, cultural critic that I am, it's like, you, the, the, there is the process of creation, but there is the pro- product itself. And in some regards, like, it's important to create that separation because... The product can be different from what the writer is doing or saying. And at times that can be positive, at times that can be negative. There can be fascistic sentiment or homophobic sentiment and so on in a book that is intended to be and written by a leftist, for example. And that's not necessarily a personal failure. Uh, It can be, but not necessarily. And, you know, the same goes both ways because it's, it's an artistic product, even if it is always oh, entertain. It's still artistic. It's fictional. It's it's written or created or filmed or directed, whatever, for a different kind of purpose that is not a non-fictional one, a, a journalistic one, and so a documentary, a documentarian one, and so on. So that's step one: it, it, establishing that degree or that sense of separation right at the start. Um, in, and in that sense, yes, Disney can directly or indirectly create a product that, you know, appeals to that or connects to that or that has that element. Fundamentally, what we need to do is look at the product itself and, you know, does Andor create meaningful leftist or anti-fascist, I don't know, discourse? Um, and I, I'd, I'd say, yes, it, it does. Does that make Disney leftist does that make disney <laughs> sympathetic to any of this absolutely not we wish it did but it doesn't it really doesn't and it very much does not uh antagonistically speaking because uh <laughs> you know it just doesn't because uh the defense of that would be a defense for its own absolution and uh 
Disney does not want to be dissolved in any way, shape, or form as the uh, self-replicating beast that it is. But aside from, you know, a colorful metaphors, which I do like, uh, um, <laughs> and course. monologuing, uh, overall, what I, what I think is that, like, you can talk about Andor and other variety of products as, like, having a leftist message, a leftist discourse, or an anti-fascist discourse. It's not always the same thing, but I'm connecting both because I think Andor connects with both in different ways. But the... the does that change anything in a wider media landscape? I think that's a good question. And I think it doesn't. Because you can have other products that do similar things and that don't necessarily change that landscape because that landscape is not determined by the products themselves, but unfortunately a great deal by these corporations like Disney. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I have more to say as we dive into Andor itself or that relationship. But as a starter, I think that's that's my sense that like, yes, Andor can be meaningfully leftist and meaningfully anti-fascist by what is in the show and not necessarily by it being a Disney product. Then again, that discussion is important. And how does that connect? Is it? Um, and I, again, I think it's up to the text, in this case, the show to convince us that it is not being cynical, that it is not being, you know, um, liberal liberally shit and shit identity politics and just you know oh look rainbow capitalism that <laughs> kind of thing which has been happening a lot with disney products lately and sometimes it's okay and sometimes i feel like yeah you're being shit and you're just like oh look at this you're tr- trying to be woke um and and when you're you actually don't really believe that and you're cynically representing or portraying that but um yeah, those, 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 that's my uh, uh, initial presentation about how I feel about that question. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with you uh, by far most. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think only with like asking the question and it's, <laughs> I'm being an asshole because I <laughs> asked the question to Frank, but, but but I've come to the conclusion that asking the question like, oh, can it be meaningfully leftist even if it's on the Disney banner is not necessarily... Once again, it's not necessarily. Once again, I asked it as well, and I've been asking it for quite some time. And even though I do always feel like asking that question is, when we ask that question, we have we are already in a dimension that is, in my very humble opinion, not very useful. Mm-hmm. From a uh, from, well, really from multiple perspectives. To <laughs> name a few, like uh, to gain a conceptualization of class consciousness or. Uh, once again, does it have leftist value? Does it have utopian potential? Does it mm-hmm. have, and so forth and so on? And does the work of art or the work of media? I'm going to use art and media interchangeably here in this in this episode. I'm so sorry, but just so that everyone knows, um, because once again, media is art and so forth mm-hmm. and so on. And so, can art be? Uh, is it meaningful art and so forth mm-hmm. and so on? I find this. Uh, I find this discussion. I don't want to. I don't want to shortcut my way through this conversation, but I'm I'm afraid I have to a little bit because it's a whole yeah. thing. Onto it once again, you can do an episode <laughs> on that. Uh, you can do a whole episode yeah. on that, and uh, it's it's. Uh, I mean, might, but who knows? But other, we can't really uh, do that right now. Whilst also talking about other things, and so I'm going to have to be a little bit short on things, and I'm so sorry <laughs> for that. But the um, oh, it's. This this question does open up a bunch of 
things that I I don't want to complain, but I I'm just gonna say very and I mean this in a non antagonistic mm-hmm. way, but I'm just gonna say I don't understand uh, online discourse very often in general Fair. to be honest. Um, but <laughs> that's my maybe my shortcoming. Once again, I'm not trying to be dismissive. I'd rather say that's or... a virtue, actually. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> Although I'm trying to meet everyone here at least halfway. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that I'm worried by this dismissiveness that is inherent to maybe dismissing Andor because Disney. Because right. this is the shortcut right. that I'm going to use here because a lot of the discourse is like, okay, well, it's, it's, it's Disney or how, <laughs> uh, how progressive can it truly be if it's Disney? And it's like, I understand, but once again, labor is always important. And even though it's done under the banner of something I quite dislike, mm-hmm. it's, you cannot wholeheartedly, because this is not just dismissiveness. And what I mean with that is that even though dismissiveness, sadly, dismissiveness, <laughs> is sadly, uh, dismissiveness is not always undeserved. I do think this particular attitude can be corrosive. Yes. And uh, once again, I'm using symbolic language here, but try and bear with me here. And it's and because of that, because it makes this argument that is corrosive, and what makes it corrosive is that it becomes it comes from this univocal, singular way of thinking that I deeply mistrust at the best mm-hmm. of times. And mainly because it's like it's it's difficult to like to then say it has no value because as in that there is some kind of okay so sorry two things <laughs> it is difficult to then say it has no value mainly then this leads to this univocal perspective that uh that then there is other conditions under capitalism and <laughs> under uh in this current mode of, produ- of production of media that then is correct like, what is the checklist then? Because then we, we will go to this, in my humble opinion, dreadfully arbitrary checklist yeah. of or of concessions that we <laughs> should make on this is okay, this is, this company is okay in making left, uh, leftist media, this company isn't okay in making leftist media. This, once again, <laughs> this leads to alienation of the worker, yeah. in this case, the produ- producers of, the, uh, of, of Andor in this case, but just, you know, people working in media in general, which then are always seen as, uh, going on to the second point, are then always seen as not part of the working class <laughs> and are then seen as bourgeois or uh, like upper class or, you know, like part of the ruling um, uh, caste, if you will. Yeah. And this is, <laughs> this is not the type of class consciousness that I care for personally. Like, understand, b- by all means, be skeptical and like, because there's a counter to this. And this counter is that, oh my God, um, how did Disney manage to release? Because I've seen this online as well. Like, how did Disney manage to release Andor, this, this extensive, uh, radical piece of leftist media? How dare they? Or how, how stupid are they for releasing this? Oh my God, somebody is going to get replaced or fired or whatever. And it's like, okay, first off, it's very important to remember that capitalism will sell you back anything. Always. Yes. <laughs> and this is, please keep this at the forefront of your minds. There is no universe in which they're like, oopsie daisy, wow, we sure accidentally did a radicalism. Like, that's not, I don't, no. I, I, 
I'm deeply mistrustful of thinking like this. So, and to, to go back to the first point a little bit, I, uh, whereas does it have value? And I don't know about which classifications it might or might not have <laughs> value. This is something that I sadly, I'm going to be lazy here. I'm, I think this is something that you need to decide for yourself. Yes. But why do, uh, I think it still has value mainly because we all, ascribe transcendental value to our actions and our labor. And this value unto itself can reverberate throughout our culture. So I think any attempt at anything progressive, leftist, whatever, can have value. Now, is this amount of value meaningful? (laughs) This is the more interesting debate that I would like to Mm -hmm. have. And I don't think this is... um, People are... Once again, my very personal point of view bound perception of the discourse surrounding media and slash and or as a subset of media mm-hmm. is 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 always rubbed up against but not never quite fully uh talked about as such it is it is like danced around or sometimes bumped into a little bit but they seem to be so hung up on the disney element of it that yeah it's, and then I just also, as a final note, I'm so sorry, quickly <laughs> like to add that media cannot necessarily be constructed as wholeheartedly progressive, wholeheartedly not progressive oh, yeah. or reactionary. And people make a lot of mistakes with this to draw it a little bit uh, broader so people might, might understand a little bit better what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say. People think that like uh, speculative fiction or sci-fi is inherently progressive. And this is just not true. <laughs> we wish. And just like how... Right, and it's like how the uh, domestic novel, for instance, is inherently reactionary because it has the unit of family and so forth, and family as the basic unit of society, blah blah blah. That that type of reactionary thinking or conservative thinking is rewarded within the domestic novel, and yeah, sure, there might be traditions within those disciplines or those uh, corners of art, if you will, but I don't think we then should extrapolate that and say, oh that this whole genre is inherently progressive, is inherently reactionary. <laughs> I think this is such a... Once again, I understand how this conclusion comes to be because it, it starts off as a shorthand. But this, continually, this continuous use of shorthand can leave permanent marks... Marks, marks. Hmm. Ah, no, um, can leave permanent markings on the discipline itself and like our perception of it. Yeah. And that's 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 worrying, I think. And well, once again, there's a lot more to get into about identity and stuff, and but I'll I'll uh, <laughs> I'll leave that for a bit. It's uh, so yeah. That's this is um, this is what I'm worried about, and mainly also this idea of oh, if you like the end or if you if you have Disney Plus, then you're not part of the working class or something because that this this is well, <laughs> I know, but it's it's it, this is the type of reductionism that we are heading towards mm. i think if we keep on thinking like this mm. and it's like oh well <laughs> you you go to starbucks you're not working class and it's like this horrendous uh, uh once again it's corrosive yeah <laughs> i was i was right the yeah. first time i think it's this corrosive idea of not just media and arts but then that reverberates into our notions of class yes. and n- nothing above this identity of media being and or being anything else is never a given. It is always a result of the relation you have to politics, economics, 
and that is then subsequently placed into the historical structure of perspective. And this is like, and I get that that's not an easy thing to like do because we are always tied up in this balance that we must strike between looking at the media in and of itself and looking for ourselves mm -hmm. in media. <laughs> these are, uh, well, you know, these are, <laughs> I think, uh, things that we, um, we tend to conflate and like see as a whole and not as a separate. And we kind of go back and forth in this spectrum. And I think we will benefit, even though it's possible to entirely separate those two things, I, I do think we should make it more of an effort to separate those two dimensions of analysis. Yeah. Not necessarily analysis, but our perspective. Right. We should categorize it a little bit more vehemently. Uh, yeah, no, to draw a bit on what you're saying, like the thing about genres is like, Genres as categories are so deeply arbitrary thing and like built upon the works and not the other way around. Genres form because of a similarity between works and not before that. So uh, that's a perspective I, I generally agree with uh, in how we interpret and understand genres. The genres are recognized and not created. Uh, but anyway, I don't want, get, don't want to get bogged down by that. I think that your discussion about... <laughs> it's sure is difficult. <laughs> no. Uh, I think your thing about um, it, it being value and it being worth and, and that kind of thing, I, I, I completely agree with everything you're saying. And that brings something that I think I've always said, like the entire history of the pod, uh, is that regardless of, you know, uh, a text being good, a text being bad, a text being made by a, a, deeply, uh, a deep conservative or a radical leftist, the fact that those texts can bring us, can be useful, interesting, meaningful in some way or another, it does not necessarily correlate to any of those elements. A bad text can give interesting insights. A deeply conservative novel uh, by the most absurd author can still offer interesting things to talk about and think and offer even the capacity for progressive insight. The fact that and ultimately, like, no novel, no category would be like, oh, this is a progressive novel. This is the progressive novel. Hell, I, I'm, I'm not going to shut up about this because I'm always talking about this. But anyway, um, I'm studying <laughs> the dispossessed, right? So, uh, and I've been literally writing dozens and dozens and dozens of pages about the bibliography without only using, like, I don't know, what is it, like, 11 texts, uh, 11 different texts over a period of 50 years. Uh, and what becomes clear is like, oh, people wanted to be, oh, this progressive or that thing, or is not being as progressive as they like or whatever. And it's like, it's never going to be, and that's not a good category. It's like, oh, this text, but it's failing here. It's be it's being absent in that. And like, okay, I I don't think you're wrong, but also it's like that's not a complete way to look at a text. It's like, oh, it's not doing this. Yes, but what is it doing then? Um. In, a, in what way do, are those absences significant, given what is there? And I think it's very, then very interesting how what you're saying and how this is then... First off, I renounce the whole idea of identifying any significant part of yourself with me. Right. And once again, you can say, oh, I really like this, or I really like that. I'm not, I'm not coming for those people. <laughs> but to say that, uh, like, you know, certain works are part of are indicators of class, or once again, I'm, I'm using class, but it can be understood as a broader thing uh, as such. But I understand class as such a broad thing because of the... Well, well let's, let's dig into that a little <laughs> bit. 
it's, it's the problem is with today that I think that a lot of people run into is that we have maybe a little bit, hmm, I don't want to call it a problem per se, mm. but there seems to be a saturation of labeling, maybe a yeah. little bit about people. And once again, I don't necessarily think this is a bad thing. No, not, not quite sure if it's a good thing either. Once again, I am going to just politely uh, scoot around that. And um, I, I'm going to do my, to my say, general hand waving of that. Is that like, a large part of it is a form of extreme liberal individualism, which is ultimately damaging. Uh, not all of it, not in every yes. way, but the a, a large portion of it is that, I feel. Anyway, my hand wave is that. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> no, but to 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 um, get in on that a little bit and to let people maybe understand me a little bit better and where I stand in the leftist spectrum, so to say, it is to designate class is uh, not uh, denigrating other identities. And I think this is class reductionism, Yeah, which is class reductionism is always yes. wrong. And because I've seen class reductionists like wave away issues as race or racism yeah. and sexism because of class reductionism. And as it's, I'm like, ooh, <laughs> mm, ooh, uh, read Gramsci. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> moving on. <laughs> well, that's a bit flippant of me. Nah, nah, it, it's not. <laughs> But then they are there. They start. They started. Exactly. It. You're not being. Um, they started with being flippant. <laughs> um, but this is um, when anything. So once again, I'm going to say this a lot. Apparently, this episode. But I'm deeply mistrustful of anything that wants us to be singular. Yes. And I never associated any working identity or working class or whatever or any class for that matter, and especially not anything revolutionary <laughs> with singularity. Yes. It always is encompassing. And this, because once again, one of the most important things to any intellectual perception of anything, in my humble opinion, is solidarity. Yes. And solidarity is not class consciousness. It is being conscious of your class and working together with other classes, uh, if possible, or with other groups and other identities as needed. This is solidarity, reaching across, you know, uh, lines and stuff and working together and saying that even though this man is of a different class or another identity or whatever, or this person, I should say, um, they, they are still my sibling. They are still, you know, we are similar and we are in this together and so forth and so on. And we should work. We should send shoulder to shoulder to work for a better, for a better future. Yeah. And getting bogged down in this, <laughs> in this debate of which media or which coffee you can and cannot order at Starbucks is, is insane to me. To give an example about how this does not work is like, go ahead and try and um, uh, so class is a, is like a thing that lives and is is affected reality, has an effective affected reality, and has notably changed over generations. Mm -hmm. Like once again, look at a uh, a, a a a farmer or worker in Russia in nineteen seventeen. <laughs> Like their notion of class and identity is not going to line up with your I notion of identity and class, probably. And that's because there's this thing called history hey. that has happened, is happening, and will continue to Woo. happen. It, uh, it, it, so once again, class, as important as it is, and as as um, as as important as class consciousness is, I have never denied this. This is not about that, <laughs> but it remains an identity, not the identity. Yes. And yes, it has a structural position, but these are not mutually exclusive with anything else. Is what I'm trying to get at. But this cognitive reality is like, 
I understand that these are uh, because of how capitalism operates or how fascism operates for that matter. It is therefore always received at the nerve endings of identity. And what I mean with that is that you are bombarded with, once you're class conscious for that matter, um, no, once you you gain this class consciousness or some degree that is uh, that is enough, so to, so to speak, when it, is, it is enough for you to realize uh, and to be agitated by the ways that your class is slighted in society and so forth. This is what I mean with it is received at this primal nerve ending. Like it's, it is constant, it's so oppressive and it, it's, it seeps into your bones to use even more <laughs> fake uh, <laughs> uh, symbolic speech. But yeah, it's, it's not, uh, but like I said earlier, it's not a given. It's a result of relation to politics, economics, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I think this idea of, of like, oh, uh, working class is this, this, and that. It's, it's, you only eat, you only eat boiled potatoes, whatever, I don't know, like to, to reach across time, for instance. <laughs> and I think this is, oh, um, in my humble opinion, such a obviously conscious ideological ploy to deliberately declass people to create internal leftist strife that I'm just not here for. <laughs> it's it also then ironically erodes and um, erases class consciousness in a meaningful way. I think. Yeah, because it becomes it becomes like <laughs> this adherence to aestheticism of not even cool aestheticism, <laughs> but like horror, horrendous, uh, insignificant like aesthetics of what you deem or what is constructed for you to be uh, identical to working class aestheticism. You, you can't experience class in that way, I think. No matter how vivid and personal it can be, as I said earlier, it is not something that is, you know, in, in your blood or whatever. It's, it's you have to, uh, you're not going to wake up one day and feel like a worker or a revolutionary. I, I think, at least. It, it is, once again, class is a transcendental something. It is not something that is, like, that permeable, I think, personally. Even though it has physical, direct points of connection, in as in, oh, I see how my class is treated and so forth. But it's never just that. It is always a broader, more transcendental reality in which class exists, I think, personally. Yeah, no, I, I entirely agree. And I think the, the issues we're pointing out they're, they're related to a particular kind of, well, essentialism and reductiveness, which is the like, oh, and I think the language that you've been using when you're talking about Andor, and, and it goes for pretty much any media, is that like, oh, is this, this, um, no, no, how do I phrase it? Um, it no, no, right. <laughs> no, it's fine. Uh, is like, is, is, I think that's, that's the wrong protocol. Um, like, is Andor leftist, or Andor is leftist, or Andor is that? Rather, does Andor have, or represents, or contains, or expresses? But this is, this essentialism of a particular product, or media, or attitude, or, well, in terms of attitudes, like, oh, going to Starbucks is that. It's, well, the question is nonsense, but, like, it is the, the uh, a very yeah. particular reductionism which wants to bog down a whole series of attitudes and actions and feelings and representations into a an essence which uh, is not really there. Like, uh, what is the working class? The working class isn't one thing, isn't a single definition. It's a plural, plural, plurality. Plur <laughs> 
Um, like, <laughs> what are things that can connect or that can be or that can represent or can feel or can act in a way that's like, oh, this is also that. It's not it's not just one thing. And I think that goes in media a lot. That's like, oh, because this is that, this is worthy or this is of value or this belongs in a can or this is a classic or isn't and, and so on and so on and so on. Again, bringing it up. The question of something especially broad, broader than that, it's like, oh, is this good or is this bad or is this morally good or is this morally evil? Even those questions don't really mean that much uh, in, in a, like a deeper analysis sense. Like, rather, I, I'd rather think in terms of like, oh, in what ways is this interesting or is this useful or not or whatever. Uh, but even products that can be like, you know, because <laughs> uh, I was listening to it recently, um, All Gamers Are Bastards Call of Duty episode, like even with something which is unambiguously evil, morally evil, like Call of Duty, can still be of worthy and interesting analysis even that it doesn't mean that it's like it's not worthwhile that it's not important it's not significant and that it can't be you know if if capitalism will appropriate absolutely everything that we as leftists as anti-capitalists anti-fascists and so on try to create do and imagine if it will appropriate everything hell well we'll, we'll do it right back as much as we can and it's like yeah, well, see this, this is trash, this is evil, and these are the ways that what you're doing show exactly how fucking atrocious and evil you are, and so on. So, regardless of these value judgments, these simplifications, and this essentialism, it still doesn't mean that this isn't something that's like, oh, this can be discarded. Not at all. And while Andor is definitely not one of those cases, it has, uh, it has gotten some sense of value and recognition in... in I don't know, wider leftist circles or whatever, uh, as something that's good and something that's interesting and has the, these representations. It's still an important discussion to have that's like, yes, other stuff can do that. And like, oh, but this is a Disney product. And therefore, no, 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 no. I mean, it is a Disney product. And yet, and still, and continuously, and so on, and so on, yeah. and so on. Even, I, I mean, I was talking about this. Even the Star Wars, the recent Star Wars trilogy, inverted commas, still has some representation of fascism. Not wholeheartedly, not as much as this show does, but still. And that doesn't mean that that is less significant. It's like, oh, this is less fascist. No, it's still fascist. It doesn't understand all of it, but it's still representing and engaging in some way with fascism. Yeah, and the only thing I think the uh, subsequent trilogy has going for it is that it slightly understands that fetishizing the past can lead to fascism. Yes. That's the only thing yes. in there. Uh, and that's that's embodied within one character called Kylo Man, I believe. I'm <laughs> quite sure. And I know it's Kylo Ren, don't <laughs> worry. It's, um, it's, it's, so that's, that's, you know, at least it has that going for it. But it's, as much as I don't think the prequel trilogy is good, uh, it has a lot clearer use of political... Uh, messaging than do you think these oh, oh yeah has. I mean there is a there's a reason why that thing about like oh this is how democracy dies and it's like the thunderous it's yeah. yeah it's it's a bit uh, not in the the uh, usual term but it's it's pathetic it's got that pathos that drama thing uh, and it's a bit excessive but uh, it's not wrong is it 
<laughs> so just to close off the thing, otherwise we get bogged yeah. down into it. And uh, already looking at the length, so I have to, I have to keep going. <laughs> um, it's um, uh, so, so the thing that I ultimately it culminates to, I think, this thing that we were har- harping on about, is that once again, I learned a lot about, I learned a lot from deeply intelligent people that I finally disagree with politically. <laughs> yeah. For instance, I, I the analysis of like uh, Dante's Inferno, for instance, or the Divine Comedy, uh, Comedia, is like, I, I, let it go, I read a lot of commentaries on it that were so insightful and written by deeply intelligent people. I despise these people probably, <laughs> probably because they're very old and like reactionary or whatever they might be, might not be, um, to... I don't know if I want to say... Fuck it. Let's sure. just say this. If for people who know me a bit better, this is going to sound even more uh, jarring, but it's... To, to name an example, one of my favorite paintings was also Adolf Hitler's favorite paintings. <laughs> and it's... So there is, an, there is an alternate reality in which me and Adolf Hitler could have maybe met in, an, in, a, in a gallery or whatever and both stood peacefully next to each other nicely appreciating this painting. And uh, it's the Isle of the Dead, by the way. Ah, that's people. a good painting. But other though. than that, it's right. And um, even though it's painted by a Swiss person, I still like it. No. <laughs> in all seriousness, it's and, and it's like oh, and like a liberal would then say, oh, is there something like um, that you like? Did you did you learn from this? Like oh, maybe you're not so different from Hitler, blah blah. Like no, go fuck yourself. I would still kill him in in yeah. a heartbeat. But <laughs> but if this if we follow this rhetoric that we have been talking about. Um, just by the sheer presence of Hitler being Hitler, that painting would then be swallowed up by fascism. And then if I would like that painting, people would be like, hmm, wow, that was Hitler's favorite painting, dude. I don't know. Are you like, you know, this is the type of conclusions that you're going to draw. You're going to follow down this path that we have been indicating. And you're not going to learn from people who like wrote something interesting about history because some of them might be reactionary. And it's just this idea that nothing of value can be produced because your political understandings might differ is who it's quite fascistic actually when you think about it but that's that's let's just again here. A, i i got a quite a, a go product on. of extreme liberal individualism right and once again this is what i mean with the ideological ploys of uh, declassing people or making people less class conscious yes. about stuff and uh well i was going to stop there yes i i think it was very good i think it was very good yes <laughs> i think so as well it's just okay so because there are a couple of other things I want to talk so, about, and we want to talk about so the media the show itself. itself. Bit, that's okay. <laughs> yes, I got a question. Oh, for you. go ahead. Um, is this the most Nietzschean Star Wars product? Oh, um, I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I will, I will answer your question with a question. What do you mean by Nietzschean? Um, would Nietzsche, <laughs> would Nietzsche uh, like, uh, like this? Hmm. Depends which Nietzsche or which part of Nietzsche we're talking about. Um, let me meet you halfway. Okay. Then. Um, I would say, like Nietzsche, Nietzsche's notion of self-creation. Right. Right. I mean, in that sense, I suppose. I suppose that there's some reasoning to that, given how much uh, Andor effectively builds his own not just his own being, but his own surroundings the entire time. But from the very beginning, in his role in, in, in the community and the, the effects that he has. And then when uh, when doing, you know, the, the heist plot, where, you know, he he doesn't take charge, but he's like, he's in the know. 
and so he is sort of the person in, in control and, and guiding a lot of what is happening uh, in a good way, I think. I don't think it's manipulative in a negative sense, but he, it's all, always yeah. it's quite self-driven in the sense of like, I will do what it is necessary for me to achieve that which I seek. And okay, you may think that, you may believe that. Sure, go ahead. Uh, I am doing this for my own reason. I know I am doing this and I will go as far as I desire. So in a very self-centered way. Um, that may not be a very good response. My, my Nietzsche is extremely rusty at this point, so I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry to, to toss yeah, it Yeah, it's fine. It's face. fun. Because uh, I think there's a quote from Nietzsche that perfectly encapsulates the message of this. Of mm -hmm. And that is, we, comma, however, comma, want to become who we are. Human beings who are new, unique, incomparable, who give themselves laws, who create themselves. And this is, uh, I think, something the makers of Andor understand. Yes. And they also understand fascism, or un irredeemable uh, bad cops are bad, corporal cops or otherwise. Yep. <laughs> uh, it's I love that that storyline ended in nothingness because fascism and uh, uh, accomplices to fascism end in nothing meaningful. And well, anyway, that's we can get into <laughs> that. Uh, should we should we talk a little bit about the, the well? We talked about the setting. Uh, this takes place before episode four or Rogue One, yeah. even I believe. Uh, for those who care about that courteous uh, uh, indication, for those who care, <laughs> and I think um, there's always an opportunity to, to create a notion of self in this uh, idea of how Endor and humanity and community are conceptualized there's always this despite being the empire being everywhere which it even talks about that and that, once again <laughs> i love i talked to frank a little bit earlier about um i can't tell if star wars is good anymore because i burned out a part of my brain by knowing so much about star wars and i was like is, is this good or once again, i knew this was good star wars but is it good good is it good unto itself yeah, i think it's good good and yeah right and <laughs> Once again, I can't tell, but that's that luckily I have Frank at my side. So this is uh, this that that's been very interesting um, uh, exploration. I'm happy to say that a lot of people are cooperating this, even though sadly it didn't get as much views as a Mandalorian would mm -hmm. have you, because once again, maybe Cassian Andor, if you know, if you only seen Rogue One, he's not that interesting of a yeah. character. So, but he becomes an interesting oh, character yeah. because the journey of Cassian, and you might have talked about this a little bit mm -hmm. earlier, but. To, to really yeah, drive yeah. it home. Um, this is essentially the journey of Cassian Andor getting class consciousness yes. and a political ideology. Yeah. And <laughs> this is all because of <laughs> because of two characters, mainly. His mother. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> two and a half <laughs> characters. It's about the relation to his community. Yeah. But mainly, if you, if you have to pinpoint two precise characters, it's about... His mother and who his mother, who has been a, a long, it was already an agitator against the republic, so obviously she's going to feel even more uh, uh, intense towards the empire, and a and a twink on a heist who writes in a in a book about who who writes who has something called his manifesto. Yeah. They use that they use that word uh, and then. He, uh, I'm, I, I wish I, I would read it. I, I'm oh, definitely. Um, because he says a couple of interesting things. 
And one thing that really resonated with me was, um, hold on, let me look it up real quick. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so much going wrong, so much to say, and all of it happening so quickly. The base of repression outstrips our ability to understand it. That is the real trick of the Imperial Thought Machine. And my God, if that isn't a one-on-one -on -one allegory for our uh, social media-induced depression <laughs> of knowing what's going on in this world, and it all and, and this this imbues us with a sense of hopelessness that I see in so many of my fellow well human beings in general, yeah. and especially leftists. And it does, thank God, go for something. Um, the conclusion of this the of the season is belief in utopic potential. I guess yeah. it's like this has value, and this is this is worth dedicating to. Yes, and to deviate, once again, I, I quoted Nietzsche, but belief, once again, my Nietzsche is not that great or anything, but um, what I understand from it uh, related to self-creation mm -hmm. is that he does believe the deed is everything, whereas Andrew incorporates, like, the deed is very fucking important. However, the intention is also of value. Yeah. It is not just sheer consequentialism, nor is it sheer deontological anything, really. And... Uh, the th most the thing that I like about it, other than that fascists are fascists again, is that this show understands, and I'm saying this a lot, I'm so sorry, <laughs> but the show understands a lot, and I'm so happy about that, um, because I don't get to say that a lot about a lot of shows and, and media nowadays, I feel, and because it's all so service level, so, you know, anyway, so mediocre, yeah. I would say, not even mediocre, but empty, hollow, and this show understands that human beings are very protean. <laughs> they are they have the ability to change and i hate them i am deeply displeased about people who go oh people don't change people don't change i'm like they might not change but it's not for a lack of tr uh, of ability but we talked a bit about this on on velvet goldmine <laughs> as well like this this utopic potential for change always rests within humans and the relationships between yes. them and i not with capital or objects once again this is also relevant to what we talked about, went on and on about a little bit earlier. <laughs> um, it's not to just identify with objects or capital yeah. in a significant or non-significant way. It's, it, I, oh, to dive into maybe, huh, I don't know if it's, I don't know if I want to say favorite, <laughs> but the ending is so good. Yeah. And I, I love the ending if, if I, Spoilers, I guess. Um, <laughs> for, for those, I don't know. I don't believe in spoiler culture, but <laughs> it's uh, just a courtesy call, I guess. Shrug. By understanding that people can change so vehemently, it shows. Maybe not as directly as I would like, or as extensively as I would like, but it shows the pathology of emotions within change, and that is so important because, especially because they contrast it to fascism, with which is always drained of all emotions except for anger. Yeah. And this is this is beautifully um there's potent anger, cold anger, exhibited by um what's her name? Well information oh, Gestapo yeah. woman. Gestapo. Uh voice actress of Jennifer from The yeah. Witcher Three. Uh but Mira? Yeah, Mira. Uh, Officer Mira? Okay. Mira something uh, she is competent cold anger fascism. Because yes, as much as I utterly despise fascists, they can be somewhat competent in some ways. Once again, their ideology will always lead to nothing. I'm not disputing that in any way, shape, or form. 
but it doesn't mean that everyone working for fascists are utterly incompetent. I don't believe that hatred as a complex emotional force can change anything significant. Mm -hmm. And what I mean with that is that my leftism, my, once again, my utopian and revolutionary ideals has always been based on my love for others, yeah. not for the hatred of the oppressive class. Not As difficult as it has been, and I haven't always been successful in this, I will be very honest, because the hate and, and yeah, let's just call it hate. That's not yeah. what it is. The hate that I felt for fascists because of history and because of current things is, is so intense at times. Deservedly so, true, but I don't believe that this hate that I feel can lead to significant social political mm -hmm. change. It will always need to be derived from my connections to humans and the relations between those humans. N enough about me. That's, uh, that's mm -hmm. something that I am really happy to encounter. And then, sorry, real quick, the cold-hearted hate that Mira shows is then contrasted to the hot-headed hate that uh, the cop, the Cyril, yeah. Cyril, uh, well, Cyril something. Um, Cyril is like a cop on for a company, so like corporate security that can't let go of the of the uh, of the death of two of his colleagues. Initially, maybe that's a noble thing. I don't know, well, but it quickly um, <laughs> dissuades that notion of nobility and showing that he is so angry at the guy who might have done it and wants to bring him uh, wants his atonement no matter what and ruins his life in the process yeah. almost pretty much and well, anyway, sorry you want to say something yeah, no no worries uh, just on that <laughs> is that like he it, what is fascinating and what I kept thinking about that is that like the, the, the two people that died who were basically thugs you know cops <laughs> um who are basically the harass sex workers? Yeah, are basically trying to extort Andor. You know, ended up getting into a ruckus, and one of them died. Andor, quite you know, rightly and uh, coldly, uh, killed the other one because you know, witness. What is interesting about Cyril is like, you know, it's like, oh no, but this is outrageous. These two men are dead, or whatever. Um, those two people are more significant to him dead than they would ever been, have been alive. Yes. So you don't really yes. care, do you? If their deaths are significant, but their lives weren't and wouldn't be had they were still alive, um, then what you're caring about is rather a certain corporate idea, strength, authority, rather than the lives of two men. Yes, I agree. Which, you know, um, that isn't as evident generally, but, uh, you know, the whole thing, it's interesting. It's also awful. I'm uh, watching sometimes when you're watching cop shows yeah. or whatever, and it's like, or even investigation shows, and it's like, oh, uh, they've killed one of us. Uh, uh, they're, they're not going to get away with this, or no, this is serious. Like, yes. oh, so it, if let me break the law to uphold the law. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, so if he wasn't a cop, then you wouldn't be serious. You wouldn't care as much, whatever. It's like, huh? So you really don't care about generally, you know? So kind of the inverse. Yeah, there's only the fascistic brotherhood. There is not the relationship he might have had to. Because you could put any other cop in that in his in their yeah. place, so it's it, there's no oh this is my partner or whatever like it's you know there's there's nothing really there. There's only the your status quo within this fascistic brotherhood that is cops. Yeah, and yeah, like it, it understands that as well. 
that's yeah, it's uh, yeah. like that negative Great negative points. sense of collectivism. It's like, oh, you're all absorbed into this thing, into corporate security. So you're all cells of corporate security, but your individuality is meaningless. And thus it is important to uphold yes. corporate security. One thing more that I'll just say about it understanding mm-hmm. stuff, the show understands. Yeah. Like it's um it understands that because it has all these plot elements that are not so this show utilizes the only kind of direct a- analogy and allegories that I'm willing to entertain. Mm. And uh, and because once again, it's it understands that when you're in a writing room and you're in when you're directing something, culture is there with yeah. you always. And this is why there's no such thing as non-political media. <laughs> and once again, if if you aim for non-political media, then that is in and of itself a political yeah. act. And I cannot say that it's said it enough. It's 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 so true. And and it is this uh, for a lot of people, especially for under the Disney banner for that matter, they have this anxiety of wanting to get rid of ambivalence. But then you diminish anything meaningful that's your product or your uh, your art could have had, I think, personally. Yeah. Like, ambivalence cannot be struck from fiction. No, never. <laughs> and, right. So, that, that's, and it, it doesn't try to. And another thing that I just want to quickly mention is that Andor, uh, the show, not the character, <laughs> it doesn't do uh, cameos of, like, famous people. It is just people. They're not even Jedis in this. There's no, there's no force or whatever. It's just people being, viscerally being people. And I, I love that. I didn't... We might not get Coder 2, but this is pretty good yeah. as well. And I... Yeah. Which does make me revise the idea of will we never get something like a Coder 2 under the Disney banner? Maybe we will. Because I might have been wrong with that assumption because, once again, capitalism will repackage anything and sell it back to you. Yeah. But yeah, anyway. Other than that, uh, I still deem the odds small. And I didn't mean it as a totalitarian <laughs> idea of... Uh, like, oh, this will never happen, but I'm kind of... Uh, I, t- I do talk in hyperbole, and I'm sorry if that's confusing, <laughs> dear listener. But uh, once again, it's it's a podcast, so I try to keep up the energy well, a little well. bit by doing that. But <laughs> Right, thank you, Frank. See, it's already working. But I, I guess also this beautiful journey of Clem... Uh, Clem, that's one of his synonyms, <laughs> but Cassian Andor, the, the titular yeah. character, gaining class consciousness and political ideology is that it shows that cynicism is always uh, maybe not an enemy, but a hindrance to actual radical significant yes. progress. And I, right, and once again, that's so great because I, I want to talk about a scene. I, 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 I yes, go ahead. You know, let's get into it. <laughs> uh, I think one of the best things that shows that is so I mentioned the high plot. There's a high plot. Yes. Um, d- a variety of different characters in there. There's the leader who believes and is engaged, but you know. Is still a human being. There's one person who is basically, this is my entire life. Um, and I'm going to talk about it very briefly at some point. Um, you have the, 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 the twink who writes the manifesto. And I'm sorry, I forget these names of these characters. Otherwise, I wouldn't have just called them twinks. It, it's I'm all sorry. right. It's, it's fine. It's not the end of the world. Uh, it's Star Wars. Names are not it, important. It, <laughs> There's a guy called Ham in this series as well. Just Ham. H-A-M. So, you know, you'll forgive me. Yeah. <laughs> and the it, as during the the preparation whatever, Endor is very you know somewhat distant because he's seen as well that's what he's doing there he's a mercenary, and you know he's been hired to do a job he's gonna get paid whatever so it's like he's not a believer he does not he's not engaged in this struggle, and you know others look at him yeah he's there with for suspicion money. some 
uh, especially the the twink uh he is you know it's like <laughs> trying to talk to him and convince him and trying to be sincere and genuine and not you know exclude him a good left exactly and and there's one other character who you don't know much about him but he's the one who is almost as cynical as andor is and is very much like you know he he's yeah. trying to be hopeful or whatever but eh, you know uh we get it we've been we've been hard, uh uh, scarred by conflict and whatever and, and and so on. So he's very much similar to Andor and, you know, there's the heist. Things go wrong. Uh, people die oh boy. as usual. Stormtroopers can shoot all of a sudden. That's wild. <laughs> people just die after a laser bolt. Yeah. That's weird. Uh, finally. That's... Yeah, well, that does create some interesting... Well, that <laughs> within this broader Star Wars experience that they can't decide on whether a laser bolt is terrible or insignificant, essentially. And it's fine. I'm, I'm not one of those people that is hung up about that, but it is uh, it's refreshing. Let me just say, let's just, let's just be positive. <laughs> I think it's refreshing that, uh, yeah, you know, the, the that, that people can just die after one bolt, after laser. Laser line? I think bolts? laser. What's the right word? Uh, but stakes. There are just stakes laser? in there. Okay. Um, that people can die very quickly. Yeah. Uh, which is what happens with guns generally, and and after the heist, a lot of people have died. Some of them are, well, sp- part of the plan worked, and you have Andor, you have the leader, and you have someone else, and someone who was injured, and they they went to a doctor who w- was like a, a potential contingency, and and so what we're left in the scene is that like there's the ship with the loot that they stole, which is a lot of fucking money. And you have Andor and this other character, this more other cynical fella who's talking to Andor, and he's like, you know, we we could could leave them, you know, we we've got the money, we've got a thingy, you're you're competent, you can drive, you can go to another planet, I know a hideaway, and uh, you know we can do it there. And what I, I I interpret that scene very much as like this is what what Andor is on a path to become, and it, it's like his mirror of. You know, I can be with my current cynicism, with my mercenary attitude, whatever. This is what I'm becoming. Someone who has gone through all that, a heist, a very much a, a hopeful action, a very difficult mission. And, you know, people have died for this, believing in this. The, the, he's ready to make it all worth nothing. He's ready to make it all meaningless. And, you know, for his own gain, as Andor could. Andor has a sense of integrity, but... Does that what is that integrity mean if it's all self-centered? What Andor does is quite significant. He shoots him. He doesn't think much about it. He just yeah. kills him. It's like, nah. Um, and you know, he he takes his cut, what was promised to him uh, uh, after the mission, and goes off as promised, really, and uh, leaves them what what was agreed. So, yeah. Well, is that he leaves all other people's shares? Because he and one other person made it out of the heist. Yeah. And essentially, he only takes his one pre-agreed-to slice of the pie, yeah. so to speak. At least the entire pie for the other yeah, person. for the rebellion in that regard, or the proto-rebellion. Essentially, yes. There's another interesting character I would like to talk about mm-hmm. real quick. And that is that the most famous character in the Star Wars lore so far <laughs> that shows up, maybe together with Saul Gerrera, that does have a really fun appearance. Yeah. The most well-known character i think is mon mothma yes. which is big in the star wars extended universe and is essentially this more even more hillary clinton uh, <laughs> version of leia of princess yes. leia 
right? I think. Yeah, because anyway, uh, we, we uh, do... love loveless marriage doesn't like their children. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that that's oh, you you hit the nail on the head. That's who Mon Mothma is. Because you know when we see Leia, we see Leia, you know, as well, a rebel, picking up arms, running yeah. away, that kind of thing, a prisoner, literal royalty as well but it's um once again mom mothma actually believes in defeating fascism yeah. and Hillary clinton doesn't but Important it's just difference. talking about the the left yeah well yes but it's just the way she uh utilizes her position within society it's very Hillary clinton-esque i think and she once again talks in this defunct political arena of the senate that is about to be uh disbanded um after uh, during episode four, it's one of the first things they say to Darth Vader. Oh, really? I didn't remember that. Yeah, Grandma Tarkin says like, "Oh, the Senate has been disbanded." Blah blah. And uh, once again, it's been it's been a while since I watched episode four, but it's one. There's always such an interesting. Uh, it was it was meant for the seventies uh, audience to like sign. Hey, this is fascism. They don't have a Senate. It's like a direct link to Roman uh, Empire, yeah. and um, also a thing that Hitler did, I believe, or like the Nazi party, yeah. and. Um, well, anyway, fascists do as fascists are. Yeah, common thing to dissolve Congress. But, uh, you know, the, <laughs> right? this, this show is sensible in showing that, like, Congress, even Congress under fascism is uh, utterly toothless and pathetic. I definitely don't have time, but the uh, her storyline is really interesting, especially with yeah. her daughter. And her daughter, her daughter being a reactionary and going back to old yeah. uh, traditional virtues. <laughs> That are that the belief in child marriage or like prearranged marriage. Yeah, her daughter is like stuff. a frat. And yes, yes, uh, indeed, it's it's very interesting view on stuff, and we see how Mon Mothma does uh, is drowning in in a loveless marriage, in a horrendous, well, everything yeah. really. Her political career is not working. Only only thing that she can do is like throw a little. Like get-togethers for the rich elites that she is a, pro- a prominent yeah. part of, and try to convince the other rich elites in the Senate. It's like, oh, these measures are being too extreme, you know, of the increasing vigilance yeah. vigilance of the galactic police state. Yes, and this this changes after the heist that Andor pulls off because after this, there is this uh, new legislation in place to like combat this uh, this type of how do you say? Um, Step of yeah. rebellion, it must be combated by even stricter imperial monitoring Which are already laws, pretty bad. Which, which, which were already pretty bad. But oh, yeah, this, this, this you know, the comparison I'm going to make. I'm sorry to interrupt you again, uh, but uh, no, I, I could forget. What this reminds me of is the like, because uh, you know, Brazil had a military dictatorship from '64 to eight yes. bit. Um, I always forget the la- the the ending dates because uh, difficult thing to to parse out when that ends. Twenty something. Yeah. Years. And, uh, you know, in, in 64, when Congress was dissolved and that kind of thing, like, there was already repression, there's already violence, there's already control methods, but that was intensified in 68 with the passing of the Institutional Act Number no. 5, which, amongst mon- many other things, allowed uh, uh, legal disappearance of prisoners, um, allowed mechanisms for, for torture and so on, and... Thanks. <laughs> and... <laughs> It um, it increased uh, these repressive measures that were already in place, and it, it's interesting because a lot of discussions afterwards in terms of bibliography and history in certain circles refer to then it's like oh these are the hard years. And it's like in a sense, sure things got the years of lead, 
these is when things got harder or more difficult. And in a sense, they're right, but they weren't good before. From 64 already, they were pretty fucking awful. But their wider scope, their more ranging uh, effects became more felt from 68 onwards when it started to affect other groups, other classes, and society in a wider scope. So, you know, to a great deal of people, and even then, 68 onwards as well, but more so from 64, it didn't change much for them. It was positive, it was convenient, or indifferent. But then it's like, oh, now now it's serious. And Definitely. and I can feel, I feel like there is some point of comparison here that's like, oh, you know, like, it was bad, but like, oh, this thing is, uh, oh, look what you've done with, doesn't mean before <laughs> was, was good. I mean, I think that's the thing, like, oh, yeah, what totally. did you do with your heist and think this was awful? Mon Mothma think it's like, things were already unsustainable and pretty fucking terrible. It, it was only convenient for you that you didn't feel or see it as much. Yeah, she's just a Republican, not anything revolutionary or whatever. It's just, I want to go back to the situation in which she coincidentally profits from most. Exactly. And I think that's the... I'm sure the show isn't thinking of like that clear an example, but to throw in a real historical example, that's kind of the situation. It's like, oh, it's, it may Definitely. not be as bad. Or no, no, no. It, it's, a, it's a fascistic police state controlling a large portion of the galaxy through, you know, fascistic means. So, you know, like the fact that that was intensified doesn't mean that what was before was acceptable or good. Quite the contrary. It can definitely get worse, but that doesn't invalidate when things were already bad. Yes, and it understands fascism or fascist control like so well because it's it understands that it is, needs to be constant. It needs to be constantly growing or yes. it dies, and it's it therefore needs these new regulations, these constant sharpening of rules. Which you know you're right to point out that they weren't great to begin with, but they will always have that downwards trajectory yeah. of like freedom of whatever and you know it will never work out and understands that and i think a beautiful utilization of that is uh well as we talked about the heist andor manages to pull off the heist no problem and then <laughs> he's sent to prison for doing yeah. nothing and that's just no chef's kiss to that beautiful. that's wonderful and that's like uh two things that i kind of want to talk about and then i want to wrap up because i don't want to get too long of an episode <laughs> I'm so sorry, but there's so much to talk about still, but I'll I'll just deal with it. And it's um so so it's it's the prison arc. There is already a, a change in Andor's conscious or idea of how he should form his political ideology, his his political identity, and so forth. And then he is put in a situation in which he can utilize yeah. that. And once again, the uh, the prison is a prison, a typical fascist prison. And I don't know. Go watch the go watch the series. Yeah, trust me, it's it's a good arc. I it like is. it. Uh, Gollum is in there. Great actor, by the way, uh, Andy Serkis. Love him. <laughs> that is, yes. He you can tell that he did a lot of mocap, and so he has a very expressive facial acting style that I I, I like mm-hmm. personally. But there's not a hint there. And I think in the prison he founds he he becomes he finds and then becomes the person that his mother always wanted him to be. And his mother is like, there's this, there are two moments where uh, Fiona Shaw plays his mother, which great actress, by the way. She, she has two amazing scenes. One where she tries to uh, post heist 
but pre-incarceration, she has this. Uh, he tries to go to his mom and say, "Let's go away, let's go away," and she's like, "No, I am part of Ferrix, which is the uh, labor planet yeah. that we talked about, which has a beautiful cohesion of everything, because even the instruments, because it's a scrapyard yeah. planet." And even the instruments are made out of raw chunks yes. of metal and like the you know, bell, the it's, bell. It's, it's yes, the bell. Like the the city or like the community is woken up by this uh, by this guy who hammers on a hollow metal plate, which reverberates throughout the town, and it's like oh, everything works. It's great aesthetic cohesion that truly is in the line of the beautiful aesthetic cohesion of the original yeah. trilogy. I think. And Star Wars has been looking for that, and it has it has crispness, it has graphical fidelity, but it doesn't have aesthetic cohesion or a sin, uh, significant utilization of statism. And I love that you know, Ferex is such a tight knitted community and everything, and because that's those are the tools of I think that are important to. Uh, there's not just the two, but two uh, tools that I think are very important to bring about a leftist society is community and unions <laughs> and Ferrix yeah. has both and I, I love that and sadly uh, and then there's the point where the mother of Andor dies off screen mm-hmm. as well because that's just what old people do they die and <laughs> sorry but in all seriousness they, she dies and then she has this hologram first she tries to persuade Andor to do something significant not to just run away and enjoy his money and she fails, and she is heartbroken yeah. about that. And all she can, she realizes she's suddenly a very old woman and no longer the fiery, uh, like anarchist esque person, <laughs> I would say, yeah. um, or agitator, or, you know, disruptor of authority and imperial uh, actions being that perpetrated by the Galactic Republic or the Galactic Empire. It is, she then realizes that she's very old and she's not getting through to her very own son and that's oh i can't remember anything emotionally deep in star wars since i don't know <laughs> since for a long time and that's just that's just oh that's everything uh, <laughs> that's oh that's beautiful and then she dies and then she has this uh she does the same again and she's this time she is successful for she dies and then her hologram is like shown as a part of a funeral uh rite and uh, this little droid, I love oh, the, the droid, best. by the way. Finally, uh, yes. And <laughs> working class droid. Sorry, to to give an award, the HBM working class hero goes to B2, yes. the uh, droid of Andor. <laughs> okay, but in all seriousness, she has this, uh, she gives her own eulogy. And uh, because she's pre-recorded, which is, I, I think is a mm-hmm. great thing to do. But other than that, she she's then broadcasted onto the, mass that comes to her funeral and she is like oh it is as i can see you guys right now and man we have been and she's just very honest like oh it was easy to just accept the empire because you know it's just little old us we were not gonna be the brunt of their oppression right so it's just you know we took their initial uh we took their initial benefits of like securing the shipping lanes or whatever like you know like as a yeah. labor community might they can they can be easily targeted by just boosting the efficiency of their circumstance, so to speak, which is a cheap way to you know garner a lot of support very quickly, and which is not to be diminishing of workers that works on every group of people everywhere. So that's not you know not trying to be facetious mm-hmm. or anything, but 
she then instigates the uh, like how oh, oh we have been idiots we have allowed them to just spread without putting up a fight well let's fight now and like <laughs> the empire that is present there because they're looking for Andor um, is like okay well let's shut it off and then people just like start rioting and to once again the final note on direct analogy allegory mm-hmm. for that matter um, is that stormtroopers show up with riot shields and are essentially dressed in SWAT <laughs> clothing of American police and I'm like oh hmm beautiful and it is very honest because people we see people who uh, like the guy who sells shipping tickets off off and on to Ferrix it dies in yeah. a riot and we see people who have spent time with he's otherwise according to um Star Wars is elitist fused. Like, once again, only the powerful Jedi can do stuff. Only the powerful political princess can do stuff and so forth and so on. We talked about... Go, go listen to our Coder <laughs> episodes if you haven't. Because then that, that sentence will then make sense. But um, it counteracts this slight elit- uh, elitism that is prevalent within our boy uh, Joseph Campbell's work. <laughs> and by just, you know, by showing the cost of community, but also... Yes, the realistic cost, but also the strength of that community, and I think that's everything. Yeah, that, that's that's, that's perfect because she she's given a speech uh, uh, that uh, after the fact, and it's very much a, a rebellious, seditious, insightful speech. And then it's like it, it gets more and more inflammatory, and people are getting more inflamed. And you know, fascism uh, and authority being as stupid as it is, sometimes like no, stop that. And it goes over and tries to cover it. It's like, no, no, stop what you're doing. Uh, and, you know, then, obviously, a riot breaks out. Who could have thought? Um, and yes. uh, it, uh, it's awesome. It's, it's great. It, it, uh, it, it is everything. And it's very much like this, this spirit of community there that's like, yeah, we're not going to take this. Uh, a really odd final note. I do like the casting yeah. of this uh, I think it's series. great. Because uh, people, people look like actual yeah. people. <laughs> And it's 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 not this hyper beautiful people and like the one person that I think is very good looking, uh, she is then tortured and looks like shit. And there's a whole thing about women not being allowed to look like shit. Like my favorite example is uh, what's that? The show about chess on Netflix. That one. Um, Yeah, you know the one, right? So um, there she there's the woman who has then this uh, other depressive episode. And the depressive episode is her with perfect hair, makeup. Only her her cardigan is slit off the shoulder, which is indication of uh, women have a depression. Obviously, their clothes are slightly messy. They're not real people. They don't get ugly, or they don't do you know, they don't do bad stuff. Like so. Anyway, my point being is that it is nice to see that women are allowed to be people. I guess yeah. <laughs> like showing the real effects on and like you know showing that physical manifestation of torture of being uncharming of being not just there to be found pretty. And that's that's great as well, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything uh, to say? Uh, I just want to make an extremely brief note on that since you mentioned the torture. It's the most sanitized torture and in that way the most terrifying. Um, and that's also oh, brilliant yes. in terms yes. of, you know, writing and, and that of like, how do you portray something deeply horrific and that is felt to be deeply horrific while showing so little. That's very good. Yes. But yeah, uh, go watch Andor. Yeah, because you can't fight against it. But yeah, uh, we can wholeheartedly yeah. endorse Andor, I guess. 
uh, 12 episodes. Yeah. Just like the amount of guards on every level. <laughs> there you go. That's that's your Easter, that's the type of analysis Yay. you came here for. Uh, <laughs> I do love the uh, fallout of people uh, having these horrendous uh, like YouTube videos about this is how many Easter eggs there were in Endor or something. Once again, I don't bear anyone any ill, yeah. Ill will, but if that's what your entire channel is about. and There's a bunch of those channels, and I don't think that's a good way to endlessly spend... It's a fun little segment, whatever, that's fine. But if that's all you do... Yeah, like, it's a nice... I think I've already made my opinion clear on that. But they had a horrible time, because there, there was so little <laughs> Easter eggs in Endor. It's just it's just plot. It's just, you know, yes. story. And that this should have been... This is the bar. This is... I would say not the minimum, but you know, it's not something anything revolutionary. And this is shows how maltreated or malnourished we are by the media landscape. Yeah. But anyway, that's all. That's all put aside. I I, I enjoyed this. I yeah. think it was good. Likewise, call us to enter. And thank you so much for yeah, thank listening. Thank you so much. And we will see you soon on the last page. Mm-hmm.